Well, we are uh, nearing the end of the regular season here, and we are doing episode 35 on remote. Uh, I am here in our beautiful team hotel in Houston, Texas. Jerry, you are back inside of Safeco Field. Jerry, it's good to talk to you. If not, we are in uh, different time zones. Thanks for joining us as always. There's a, this is far easier on my end, as I understand it. Well, you know, when you're the general manager, everything's easier. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, most things. Most things are easier. <laughs> if not more stressful. Well, hey, uh, the good news is, Jerry, that the Mariners actually made it to Houston last night. I think this is an absolute first uh, in my, uh, I guess, relatively speaking, brief time in baseball compared to yours. Uh, last night, once the Mariners uh, game ended in Anaheim, we found out that we would not be leaving the Big A on time, but rather we'd be leaving, I'm going to ballpark it at just over four hours later than usual because the luggage car at John Wayne Airport T-boned the team plane. We had to fly on the Padres, no, excuse me, we had to fly on the Giants plane after it landed in San Diego. The John, the John Miller Air Express was flown to John Wayne and uh, the Mariners boarded that and got into Houston at about 3.30 central time this morning. And you got a nice night's sleep. Have you ever heard of a, a luggage car uh, running into a team plane on the uh, tarmac before, Jerry? Is this a first? That is a first for me. I, I've the the lengthy delays, the need for a new plane, the the crazy travel schedules, and late arrivals are all generally par for the course. But getting T-boned by the luggage cart guy seems very Leslie Nielsen Airport ish. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, that's unusual. You know, we have. And I mentioned this guy's name before. We have the best traveling secretary in the game, Jack Mossman. And, you know, this is all out of Jack's control, obviously. He's at the ballpark when said driver is a ramrodding of the Mariners charter. And I asked Jack, I said, how, what, what, how, how did this happen? And he said, it's very simple. Uh, he thought he had it in reverse. Uh, he had it in drive. And he stepped on the gas. And voila, you got a big old dent and a big old 747. And I don't know how you get a dent out of a plane like that, but I feel like uh, this gentleman caused a very extreme amount of damage, both in terms of uh, opportunity cost and also in terms of just actual damage to a probably pretty expensive bird to begin with. Is, is there a, a van, a mobile service, kind of like the window replacement, windshield replacement that drives around <laughs> from airport to airport? De-ding the plane uh, after it's yeah. ramrodded? You know, we, we find out, we get this group text, as we always do from Jack, once the game's over with, and it says, you know, here's the bus times. Because we got to pack up all the radio gear, right? we got to wheel it down. And we're never, we normally have hit people behind the curtain. Uh, once, the t- once the final out is made on getaway day on the road, I would say we typically have in the neighborhood of an hour to get everything packed up, get stuff down to the truck. Get it, give it to the club. He's to load it. We get on the buses, the whole thing. So it's, it's like it's plenty of time, right? It's twice as much time as you need. So you're not in a rush. And we get this text that says, uh, and keep in mind, it's about four o'clock right now. And the game is over with. And we get a text that says buses at 7 p.m. Uh, with a little asterisk, mechanical issues. And so we're, you know, we're hungry. We're like, we're going to be really hungry by the time we get on this bus. So I did, Jerry, uh, what only any self-respecting major league broadcaster do and i called domino's and i dropped 50 bucks and i ordered pizza for the whole crew and they they drive i call i call domino's and i say uh yeah do you guys deliver to angel stadium and they said no and they gave me the angel stadium delivery domino's and i said yeah just have the driver call me and meet me by the two big red hats 
And so, you know, I was imagining them having to like slide the pizzas like through the prison gate of the front <laughs> gates. Um, uh, but there was actually a security guard there at whenever the pizzas got delivered, like 545. And so uh, he was able to let me out. I, I was able to get the pizzas and breadsticks, bring them back. And like the whole crew, plus some behind the scenes people from Root were all there. We had like eight guys up in the press box and Sunday Night Football was on. And we were all alone in the big A, just running amok and eating terrible delivery pizza. So that was uh, our Sunday night. It could have been worse. It, it, but it could have been a lot better, and, and even with the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just one time. To, I could have helped you out with maybe a little delivery pizza place in the in the area that, that, that could have gone over a little better than the Domino's. But n- not to slam Domino's, but, you know, it was uh, – I, and, and I understand you're trying to keep this within a, a confined budget. Oh, no, please. We're on an opportunity like that, there is no limit, right? I mean, it's whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes. Now, I tried calling Pizza Rosa. Is Pizza Rosa by chance what you're talking about? No, I would have gone the Johnny's route. There is a, there's a small chain in the area by the name of Johnny's, and eh, tough to go wrong. All right. Well, you know, next time this happens, I will be much wiser about things, and I'll give you a call. Maybe we'll even record a podcast while we're waiting because we had, you know, like four and a half hours. Um, but the good news is uh, we made it to Houston. I think everybody slept in very nicely today, and uh, we are off and running here. And remember, you can always uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast, and we'll get to listener questions later on the show today. But you can always email us your questions for Jerry to answer the wheelhouse and mariners.com, one of our favorite parts of every show. Well, hey, Jerry, obviously it made some fun travel stories uh, last night, but the good news is the Mariners, hey, they take three out of four in Anaheim, and the Mariners were really looking to kind of establish uh, not only a series win, especially in four games, but really establish some really good momentum coming into Houston, although the Mariners had fine success last time they were here. What did you take away from those four games at Angel Stadium, Jerry? Well, I thought for the most part we played well, which was refreshing after the way we finished that last homestand, where, where frankly we just didn't. But you know, getting out there on the road against a divisional team, and and one, I know these guys do have pride. Every single player in this league, they're they're finishing out the string, and they do have pride. And we still have at least mathematically something to fight for. So I, I was pleased with the fact that we went out, we played well, we saw some good defense, we did see good pitching, uh, and roughly throughout the series, with maybe one exception, I really like where our bullpen has been over the course of the last, let's call it, you know, five six days, especially uh, what we saw out of a handful of guys down in in Anaheim, and maybe most notably Sean Armstrong, who's been a breath of fresh air since he came to the big leagues uh, to start well to finish August into September. And and I like the way we swung the bats. We we actually did create some traffic on the bases and and cleaned it up at some opportune times. Yeah, until yesterday, we we did about all you could do in a in a four game series, and that was kind of just what the doctor ordered after a pretty lackluster finish to the homestand. Well, I, I want to talk to you about Mitch Haniger and kind of Mitch just taking over a game like he did on the homestand as well. But since you brought up Sean Armstrong, let's go with that first. So Armstrong, obviously, with Tacoma for almost the entire season, gets called up uh, late to the Mariners. And, Jerry, you look at what he is doing on the mound, right? He's got this three-pitch mix, the fastball, the slider, the curveball. Jerry, they're hitting 143 on the fastball. They are literally hitting 0-0-0 on the curveball to date. 
and a pitch that's not like he's only throwing five of those so far. Like he is throwing his curveball with some regularity. And when I look at the opposing average, Jerry, on the fastball of 143, now it's not like he has limited velocity. I mean, his average fastball is about 94. But on the other hand, it's not like he's throwing 97 to 98. So what is it that you make of his heater and the how hard it is to put that thing to square it up, uh, given the fact that it, it doesn't seem to be overpowering, although it's a good fastball. It, it is a good fastball. And part of the reason why we went out and acquired Sean was because of that fastball. He's got a very deceptive ride and carry on his fastball, and it plays really well with his slider. It, it, slider, cutter. He throws a, a cutter in the, let's call it, 89 to 91-mile-an-hour range, sometimes a little harder than that, and he has the ability to turn it into uh, a slider. He also has a nice top-to-bottom curveball. Sean's been a performer and a, let's call it a strikeout artist at the minor league levels on through AAA. He's done it throughout his entire career. And, you know, he was an out of options guy with the Cleveland Indians. We acquired him with some of the money we had collected to, uh, to I guess, attract Shohei Otani. We went out and spent it on Sean Armstrong. Knowing that, and here's a, a nuance of, of managing rosters at the major league level, we actually see long-term value in Sean Armstrong. And when a player is out of options like Sean is, and you have him through in AAA, so meaning you've, you've cleared him through waivers and you have him in AAA, the day you call him up, that's your last shot. So, you know, we were we worked with Sean Armstrong uh, in Tacoma on cultivating his pitches, but more on cultivating his command of those pitches. And and, you know, multiple times through the course of the season, we had considered calling Sean up. But then you were going to be landlocking your bullpen and with Sean Armstrong out of options, with Nick Vincent out of options. And I can go on with at the time Juan Nicasio and Alex Colomay and and a lot of fixed pieces there was no way to call Sean up and not be able to, I guess, be able to navigate around it. And what we had to do was wait until we had September in the, in the, the I guess, in the, the window so that we had the ability to ride him to the end of August and get him into September because we want to cultivate a longer-term role for Sean that we frankly couldn't have done in June without landlocking our team. No, that's very interesting. I mean, I mean bottom line for Sean – what he is doing in this final month and change in his first time in Mariners uniform, this is huge for him going to, to next spring and into 2019, correct? It really is because our first exposure to Sean was spring training where, to be honest, he didn't pitch very well. And we didn't see the type of physical stuff, the type of command, or even the bat missing that he'd always shown in his career to date. But he'd always played for the Cleveland Indians. And, and a lot of times, the first time you're traded, the first time you move from one organization to another, there's a bit of, let's call it a, a, a startling factor where you get to a new organization, you see a new way of doing things, and you, and you see opportunity, but you also don't know the people who are around you. You've not established your trusting relationships, who you go to for what information. And we needed to get Sean over that hump. Fortunately, like I said, we were able to get him uh, through waivers at the end of the spring, which is tactically the easiest time to get a guy through. And as a result, we were able to the good fortune of having a guy who really came into his own through the course of the AAA season and has done a terrific job since joining the big league club. And, and I, I, and I think caught the attention of not just the staff, but the organization around him. 
Yeah, he's been a real treat to watch, and he's played an awfully big role for Scott Service and the Mariners here down the final stretch. Okay, so we talked about talking about mix. Let's get to that. Jerry, we saw this at the end of the homestand. We saw it in particular Saturday night. I mean, there are only so many guys in the league who can kind of take over the game in every facet of the game, and Mitch Hanniger has done that. What kind of feels like time and time again this season, colossal 443-foot home run, Pegs Trout at the plate, which, man, felt great for every Mariners fan. Uh, takes uh, a dinger away from Justin Upton. Uh, we saw what he did running the bases at the end of the homestand. I mean, this is it getting to a point, Jerry, where, I mean, when you went out and you acquired Mitch with Gene Segura from the Diamondbacks, you were projecting him, right? I mean, he had very limited at-bats to the majors. Is he getting to a point where you're saying to yourself, man, this is even better than what I thought? he could be in terms of a complete player or is this what is this what you project and what you had in your mind's eye I don't know how anyone could have had this in their mind's eye you know I'd be <laughs> a little self-promotional or giving too much credit to the organization in this case the credit goes to Mitch he, he's he has outperformed even what we thought were high expectations we, we thought Mitch was going to be a, a solid major league regular we thought he had a chance to make an all-star team in his best year but to to get that type of performance right now is is stunning. Uh, he's doing it truly since the day he was acquired. He he showed up in back back in spring of 2017 in Peoria. He started raking then. He's showing us throughout nothing but steady play, the defense, the base running, and, and as I've said in so many different occasions, his preparation, the way he prepares to do his job, is should be really a, a something that his teammates note and and want to replicate because he's he is out there every day doing the right things preparing himself spending his off season working on his body working on this past off season working on his running speed not a lot of guys really commit to doing that and I, I think he's he's committed to making himself the best player that he can be and and we're seeing it he's had a lot of staying power this year and this is now consecutive seasons where he's finished with a flurry and it sure is exciting to see because I think that that's what championship players do. Well, you, you know, and Scott talked about his preparation even dating back to last year, even in spring training of last year. And Jerry, when I think of Mitch Hanniger and his preparation, of course, I don't, I don't know what was going on in the weight rooms and in the video room and in the cages. We don't see that stuff. But what I do see is that Mitch Hanniger is never idle for very long in the clubhouse. And when he is sitting at his locker, he is not sitting at his locker. Uh, FaceTiming or texting or playing video games. I mean, Mitch Hanniger strikes me as a guy, Jerry, that when he rolls up to Safefield Field or to Minute Maid Park today, I mean, he is locked in from the time he walks in in his jeans and a T-shirt and gets changed into his clothes because I've never seen that guy just kind of hanging in the clubhouse. You know what I mean? No, there's always something. And he might be walking out to the prison gates waiting for the Domino's delivery, for all I know. <laughs> but he's, uh, no, he is, he is. He comes to the ballpark with, uh, with a purpose. And, I, and I, it, it sounds so cliche, but it's true. And, and we do have other players that, that embody those same kind of disciplines. But I, I've said it before, he is f so mature for a player of his experience. The way he shows up, goes about his business, is, is really uh, – such a, a a good representative of the team and how things should be done. So you know, it's a we're excited to see him finish strong and and really hit some markers. You know, it's it's nice for him in a season that that really 
the, the world noticed how good he is to do things like have a 25 homer season. Like, like, I mean, frankly, he's, he's throwing up one of the more uh, consistent seasons in recent Mariners history for any outfielder, uh, to, to do what he's done is really advocating for the, the reasons we brought him here, but more importantly, it's showing the world how good he can be. And I know that's important to him. So when you look around baseball at a trend that developed, I don't know, Jerry, maybe two years ago, George Springer here in Houston, right? Mookie Betts in Boston. You look at the National League, Matt Carpenter in St. Louis. Uh, to some extent, Jock Peterson with the Dodgers. Uh, last year, uh, Charlie Blackman with the Rockies. I mean, I think you get what I'm getting at here. We're talking about leadoff hitters that are 25 to 35 home run guys that are instant offense. And now you add Mitch Hanniger to that list. You know, it seemed like when Scott put Mitch at the top of the order, Jerry, it was the reason of, hey, the offense is in a funk. We need to get it out of a rut. Mitch has been one of our best hitters all season. Let's just throw it up, throw him up there, see how it works. I mean, is it getting to a point now, Jerry, where when you are going into the winter and projecting a lineup for 2019, and obviously I'm not asking you to commit to something, but more just to try to get inside your head a little bit, are, are you seeing this as the pathway to the future of the Mariners lineup? Mitch as the leadoff hitter moving forward, not just through the end of this season? Well, I, I think, first, I wouldn't commit to anything without talking to Scott because the, the lineup has and always will be something that he and the staff uh, largely determine. But in this particular case, the, the option or the choice to put Mitch there, it, it was made with the idea, let's just take our best players and put them all up at the top of the order and, and make sure that Mitch Hanniger gets more at-bats or more plate appearances in the game than anybody else. <laughs> I, it's, it seems so simple, but that is that is where this new, uh, I guess, the new-look lineups with power and multifaceted players hitting first, it, it's just quite as simple as if you if you use those plate appearances over the course of the season, it is remarkable how many more times Mitch Hanniger will get to the plate than if he's hitting third or fifth. And, and the math works. You're likely to score more runs when your best hitters hit more. And, and that was the, the logic here. So the, the rotation of the lineup was intended to be just effectively a rattle of the trash cans in the clubhouse prior to going into that Houston series in in August. But in the time since, what you notice is just what those other teams have noticed, which is when you hit your best players at the top of the lineup, it makes you a more imposing team. And and Mitch is certainly that player or one of those players. There's no doubt about that. It's been remarkable what he's been able to do at the top of the order. Well, let's, uh, let's turn the page to pitching a little bit. Uh, we know that you have uh, two of your starting pitchers that are either dinged up or under the weather. Uh, Paxton, unfortunately, under the weather. Felix dealing with the hamstring. Any kind of update on those two guys as we uh, go into the second and third phases of this road trip? My first reaction is when you say you have two starters dinged up. But I, my reaction is that's it. You know, we're <laughs> we're in September, and you know it is the long season. The way it it drains starting pitchers, uh, especially starting pitchers, it's. It's a magnificent season for us in that we've had 
four especially generally uh, effective starting pitchers who I think are all going to be right in the zone of that that qualifier, the ERA qualifier at about 160-ish innings. Obviously, Mike Leake has already surpassed that number, and the others are right there. So, you know, to be able to do that with in this era, and especially coming off the season that we had a year ago where our pitching just wasn't healthy, it, for our guys to do that has been a real positive. You know, I, I think, and we were much maligned when making this comment before the season, that that with the exception of the the big teams, the elite teams in baseball, you know, the, the current division leaders plus the Yankees, we felt like our starting pitching was just about as good as anybody else in the in the league. And that's actually borne out to be true. Our starting pitching is is running, I think, fifth in the American League in F war right now. And and they've done a really nice job of of giving us exactly what we'd hoped this group could give us. And we look at the the potential return of James Paxton, probably looking at two more starts, maybe three before the season ends. And uh, and similarly for Felix, I would anticipate for Felix more in the range of two. And Felix is still here in Seattle. He's in a throwing program and, and we're hoping that he's able to join the club sometime while we're in Texas and, and hopefully make a start there. If not, would likely see him make as many as two starts in that, that last homestand. And similarly for James, James left yesterday after recovering from a bout with pneumonia and flew in to meet the team. I'm sure his travel schedule was significantly <laughs> different than yours. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Pax flew yesterday, was meeting the team in Houston today, and, and uh, he'll throw a bullpen session and then be slated for a start once once Scott and Mel and, and James sit down and figure out where best to, I guess, insert him into the rotation and maybe as importantly determine how many pitches he'll throw or innings as he attempts to come back from what can be pretty draining. I saw James on Saturday and he looked a little gaunt and, and he has lost some weight in this, what I think was a quick, but, but a thorough bout with, with pneumonia. So getting him back out on the mound, I think is good for him. I think it's good for the club and, just building innings with these guys, particularly with Wade LeBlanc, with Marco Gonzalez, and with, with James, because there's it is important to make sure that every time you're looking to push the envelope and expand innings, you're you're starting from a from a stable point. And each one of these three guys is going to end their season with 160 or more innings pitched or something in that range. And that gives them every bit of a of opportunity to add on to that number in 2019. We know of some mechanical changes that Felix has made that he feels has uh, helped him, particularly on the command side of things. What's the level of importance for Felix to be able to get back on the mound just to kind of use those last couple of starts of the season this year as uh, kind of that test kitchen to make sure that those are exactly what he wants them to be in terms of the changes and the effect of them going into the next season? I think they're important for the last reason uh, you know going into next season what what ideally we could achieve out of getting Felix out there another time or two before the season ends is for him to feel good about how his season ended you know it's a, it's it, Felix didn't have a good season and he's going to have to go home and and focus on whatever comes next and what we've been able to tap into over his last two or three maybe four outings truly since he had a relief outing coming in in Oakland 
what we've been able to tap into through through his application, through the work done by Mel Stottlemyre and Brian DeLunis with Felix, was was getting to something that might work for him. And and the more time he has to to put that into play, the more success he feels uh, in the moment, the better he feels over the long off season. The more he's likely to focus on working on that thing. And and if that thing helps him, you know, if it's just a little less hip turn, if it's being a little bit more online with that front side coming through his delivery and it's allowing him to be just a little bit more explosive down the hill and a little bit more on top of and finishing that two-seamer. That's what we've seen, and we want him to have that same sense before he goes home. We don't want his last thought to be that he popped a hamstring and didn't pitch for the last three, four weeks of the season, three weeks of the season. I imagine that a, a pretty good chunk of our listening audience is fairly uh, analytically inclined, Jerry. However, you referenced F4 a moment ago as something that you use to kind of gauge uh, the rotation in this case. Can you tell us about F4, what it is and how you use it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fan graphs. It's a, it's a public domain, a site that most, the, the, I, frankly, it's, it's kind of the, the hub of the sabermetrics movement over the years. And, you know, Dave Cameron, Jeff Sullivan, they, they, they've, they've operated this, this site for years, actually guys who started uh, here in Seattle. So it's, uh, I would say 30 major league clubs at some point during the day have one of uh, fan graphs or baseball reference or sometimes both up on their computers. And if you're going to reference something in the public domain, those two in baseball prospectus are probably the three most common. And fan graphs is generally a, a place to go where you're going to get a pretty close look at the way we value wins above replacement, which is a little bit more process oriented. And let's go baseball reference or B-War would be a little bit more results oriented. I think both have tremendous value. And depending on what you're looking to assess, for instance, if we go back and assess the value of a player over a long career, I think a B-War is is the, that's, that's the the holy grail. That's the, the the number you're looking for. It's just simply the results the player got once it was done. But F War gives us more of a, a look into the process, how the, the 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 value of that win came to pass, and it tends to reward good process over simple good results. And and I, I you will see that in these in these areas, James Paxton, Marco Gonzalez have really excelled. Because their process has been good, they've they've thrown strikes, they've missed bats at a more than adequate flavor. You're going to get extra credit for keeping the ball in the ballpark, and extra credit for keeping the ball on the ground. And you know, you may see, for instance, a Wade LeBlanc generate a higher B WAR number uh, than than he will in F WAR because he is more inclined to giving up the homer, to giving up the fly ball, and not a particularly powerful guy who's going to strike a lot of them out. So it. F war is is a cumulative process oriented number, one stop shop, and like you might expect, the the best rotations in baseball are the Houston Astros, the Cleveland Indians, and even in the American League, the New York Yankees, and and we wind up we wind up fifth in the in that list, which is generally where we thought we'd be. And you know what I didn't 
imagine was that would be hook and horns with the the kings of the opener, the Tampa Rays, <laughs> for our spot on the list. But you know, at the at the end of the day, you get there in so many different ways. But we find the that the the metrics available on Fangraphs are probably closest to what we would produce internally, and and we do. And we try to take those three public domains and blend them to, to come up with uh, maybe a little bit more of a of a guesstimate, let's call it, for what a player's value will be moving forward. So if you take the results-oriented uh, war value, the the process-oriented war value, and and similarly what you get from baseball prospectus, and and just simple add them together and divide by three, you got a pretty good idea what that player's value is in the market. It was interesting. Uh, Dave Cameron was just recently at Safeco Field. He was hired from Fangraphs to work in the Padres front office, which, you know, it was when that happened, Jerry, I and mean, that was really big news around kind of the uh, the Steamhead community online. Was that something that surprised you at all? Was that something that uh, you had seen guys who write or work for those publications that you would ever consider bringing aboard? Uh, it didn't surprise me, a because I think Dave Cameron is very good at what he does, and and again, it's a, the quality of the information that comes out of of FanGraphs or or similar type sites is it's so good, it's so much more sophisticated than it ever was before, and we in the baseball community we're reading it every day. So if if something resonates with you and and you see a writer that that starts to appeal to your senses or that writer turns you on to something that you may not have otherwise noticed or seen happening. It's a, you now in the industry, whether it's at the winter meetings or at an all-star function or something as simple as picking up the phone and making a call, you can access those people a lot easier than you once could. And I'll go back to, to 2007, 2007, I was working with the Arizona Diamondbacks overseeing scouting and I had a similar experience with a with a, a young writer by the name of Carlos Gomez. And you know, Carlos wrote for the Hardball Times, and and his specialty, his niche, was breaking down pitchers uh, for and after before and after each draft, and uh, giving you an, an interpretation of what he thought of the mechanics, what those pitchers were doing biomechanically, and he got so sophisticated in how he was breaking them down. Uh, that it was so far beyond what you saw on the internet at that time. It was fascinating. And, and, uh, shortly after getting hooked on Carlos's breakdowns, he became a, uh, he became a scout for the Arizona Diamondbacks who eventually became our director of, of international scouting. And then not in a, in an uncommon or, or a, what should be a shocking event. He became the, the international director of scouting for the, the Angels down in Anaheim, where he still is today, and uh, does a fantastic job. And that's how Carlos entered the game. He was a, a four-year player at Purdue who who never played a day of professional baseball outside of some winter ball in Puerto Rico, but you know applied his trade writing for for the Hardball Times and and to for lack of a better term, it turned me on. I liked reading the way he wrote about players and and hired him as a scout and he's had a wonderful career signed good players and and i think he's going to be an impact guy in this industry for a long time that's becoming far more common in in the game today and and those are just two examples you know dave and carlos are two examples of many people who are entering the game from non-traditional avenues 
That's terrific. That is awesome. So I guess the answer is yes, you have tires. Yeah, yeah. You it's crossed my mind once before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jerry, I'm, I'm very excited because I feel like I have a wonderful stump JD for you this week. <sighs> no, this is very straightforward. I think you have a high probability of getting this correct. Um, so here we go. Jerry, can you name the first player elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame following Tommy John surgery. The first player elected to the Hall of Fame following Tommy John surgery. Following Tommy John surgery. Hmm. Who was the first Tommy John player elected to the Hall of Fame? I am going to go with I feel like this has to be a really uh, you know what? It's John Smoltz. Ah, you see, now John Smoltz, it's a great answer, Jerry. But sadly, incorrect. Ah, you're John killing was me. Pitcher. John was the first pitcher to have had Tommy John elected to the Hall of Fame. But <laughs> if you listen closely to how I phrased the question, Jerry, who was the first player to have had Tommy John elected to the Hall of Fame? The first player. The first player elected to the Hall of Fame to have had Tommy John. You're bl- you're blowing me up right here. The words that I'm thinking in my head, I really don't want to say on a on a public broadcast. <laughs> First player. Uh, yeah. So obviously not a pitcher. I don't know the answer. I'm I'm stumped. Paul Molitor. Ah, uh, I could have sat here for hours and not got that one. There's always got to be a, a little Mahler. trick with you, right? You. You're yeah, like the well, crafty well, lefty flipping up the, you know, I'm going to call you Aaron Love Goldsmith. Yeah. Uh, Paul Molitor, the first player. Uh, John Smoltz, the first pitcher. So uh, there you have it. I think you should hold on to that in your back pocket in the baseball ops of meetings this winter. And uh, feel free to recycle any of these. And you can be the one who looks like a genius. <laughs> uh, That's right. I, yeah, I found, I found that because people forget all the time that, you know, I mean, hey, Corey Seager had Tommy John this year, right? He's the most notable position player. Uh, Miguel Sano had Tommy John surgery before he came to the big leagues. Uh, it doesn't actually had Tommy John surgery. I mean, it, it does happen to uh, guys who are not up on the mound. So, uh, yeah, there you go. I, uh, I found that to be uh, pretty interesting, and I knew that you would as well. But I did – I put your level of probability of getting that uh, relatively high, Jerry. That seemed like something that you'd be all over. But <laughs> – <laughs> Alas, you uh, disappoint me again, Jerry. So I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm doing the best I can to keep up. Now, now, not only am I in a position to feel like I need to know every baseball fact that's ever been born, I feel like I have to listen to the presentation of the question in a different way than I've ever done before. Hey, Jerry, it's September. You know, we got to finish strong. Let's focus. Stay focused. You know, it's the final stretch. Uh, but hey, uh, keep that one in mind uh, for next time around. I thought that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Uh, okay, so on to some uh, simpler questions for you, our listener questions of this week. Remember, you can always email the show, uh, thewheelhouseandmariners.com. This is uh, David right here in Texas. Uh, Jerry, assuming that you and I will be uh, headed to Tokyo for next year's season opener, uh, besides baseball, what are you most excited to uh, see, do, eat, etc. while visiting Japan? Uh, you know, funny, I've had a lot of opportunity to spend time in Tokyo through the years. 
probably about one month out of every season from 2006 to 2011 uh, I spent in Tokyo or in Japan, uh, in and around Tokyo, using it as a home base. I love the the city of Tokyo and the, the Japanese culture and and I've had some great experience looking around the city doing all the touristy things. The one thing I would like to go back and do that I've not done in many years is I want to go back to the, the Tokyo fish market. Have you ever done that, Aaron? Have you ever been there? I've not been there and I've I've read all about the fish market and I've seen videos on it and of course photos and it looks awesome, but I do know that you have to get there at like the most ungodly hour is that right to really see it in full action yeah i think it's like a 3 a.m wake up call to get down there and see like the auction starting and you the 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 size of the fish the enormity of the tuna that they're that they have it's just incredible and uh i i think the it it's one of those things you don't really get the opportunity to do in your living room so take advantage uh you know, last year, when we were, we had a scouting contingent of which I was one who was over there to watch Otani, uh, Tom Allison, Ted Hyde, myself, Anthony Suzuki, who, who was serving as our guide and translator. We, we, we all went to the, to the Tokyo Sky Tree, which by itself seems like about as touristy thing you can do. It's, you know, it's the, the Tokyo version of the Eiffel Tower or the Needle. And you go up the the Tokyo Sky Tree. It's I think it's the second highest uh, or second highest structure in the world. And you get up to a to a tower. They they have a an observation deck that is I believe the the highest observation deck in the world. And and you are looking over Tokyo and you feel like you can see Korea. I mean it is you are up there and it is pretty cool. It's 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 an awesome place. It's just seeing how the culture operates day to day. I look forward to going back and and hope we can win a couple of games while we're there. Yeah, I I would love to see the fish market. I mean the videos I've seen of basically samurai swords breaking down these tuna is incredible. Uh I have to obviously crush some sushi, right? Like the like the best sushi that the planet has to offer. I have to get to and I'm a little bit of a bladesmith, uh, Jerry. My uh, kitchen has a very wide-ranging collection of Japanese knives uh, of both Global and Shun. But I would love to have a real, honest-to-goodness, Japanese, one-of-a-kind, handcrafted kitchen knife. Uh, which I don't know how many yen that's going to set me back, but I'll save up for it. And so I'm going to have to do some, some pretty copious research to uh, know exactly where to go and uh, what to be looking for but that, i think that i'm gonna have to take that home I'm gonna have to take that home from that series and have to, that'll be something that i'll treasure forever uh so that's what i'm looking forward to but i have a feeling that wherever they're good wherever the good sushi is that's where i will find uh jerry depoto for at least one meal there i would have to think i, I would think more than one meal but that's just nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say one of the things that I that I do love about Japan in general is that each, you know, I'm a big ramen fan and each of the different prefectures or, or uh, let's call it regional uh, spaces in Japan, they each have their own good ramen base like there you go to, to Tokyo and you get one 
base. You go to the northern end of the country and you get another. You might get a, a miso base. You might get a, a chicken base. There, there are all kinds of different bases. And, and if you just spend some time hopping on trains and riding around to the different ramen spots, you, you'll come up with so many different flavors. And, and some of them are explosive. And it's just an awesome experience popping around. I probably had two dozen different you know, uh, ramen outings in, in the Tokyo area or, or in Japan in general and never ceases to amaze me how many different flavors they can create based on the, the, the base that they use. You know, when I hear you talk about ramen, it actually, and I can't believe I'm saying this, like when I hear you talk about ramen or let's expand it to pho as we've discussed on this podcast before, it's like the only thing almost that can makes me, I'm going to say this, actually crave a rainy winter day in Seattle <laughs> because when you're when you're able to, to crush a bowl you know a, a four court mixing bowl of pho or ramen in Seattle on a winter's day uh, that's about that's one of the real fine uh, culinary experiences but it would be even better in Japan so I'm glad you uh, you mentioned the ramen side of things because that will I, I don't know how many games I'll actually be uh, attending to broadcast uh, given our food schedule possibly in Japan uh, but I'll have to get some recommendations from you beforehand for sure I'll be with you, uh, <laughs> checking in on the game on, I mean, yeah. the, on the uh, phone. We'll, we'll, we'll be stride for stride. Hey, so this is really an interesting question, and I, it comes from Eric. And he wants to know, Jerry, what has been more impactful? And this is kind of like saying which child is your favorite. Uh, let's preface it with that. Converting Eddie to a closer or getting Mitch as the, quote, throw-in uh, in the what was known at the time as the Gene Segura deal. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Wow. I, I, in this particular instance, it's hard to pick between the two, not just because it, it's really hard to pick between the two, but they're both <laughs> roughly everyday players. Is that the Common sense tells you, and you know, this is something I've, I've learned for many, many years, and it was taught to me, I think I've mentioned it on here, regarding draft philosophies, uh, to stick with the, the position player when all else fails because you know he's out there every day. But what we've seen this year with the impact made by Edwin Diaz and and having done it as steadily and as regularly as he has, I feel like he's categorized a little more closely with being an everyday player than being a pitcher. Uh, so I, it's common sense tells me to still go with the the everyday position player because of the the day-to-day impact they make. But make no mistake, we, we don't have a winning season. We don't have the, the type of bullpen impact we have without Edwin Diaz being there. And and frankly, I don't want to minimize or diminish what I think Edwin would have been capable of as a starting pitcher because I do think there was a world that Edwin as a starting pitcher in the big leagues is something. I, I just think Edwin as a Edwin as a reliever is one of the best relievers on earth. Edwin as a starter was probably going to be a face in the crowd. And I, I think to to make that statement is all we need to know about why Edwin's now pitching in the ninth inning for us. And, and in a role, I think, that impacts us, maybe unlike all but a handful of pitchers in baseball. But Mitch Hanniger has simply been one of the most valuable position players in baseball this season. And that doesn't grow on trees. So if I had to pick one uh, to, to grow a team with, I'd pick the guy who does it every single day and and understand that you're not going to win a championship unless you have the other one too. So I'm really glad they're both Mariners. I was talking with Blow the other day about this because well, Mike and I did talk time to time about how it's never been harder as a hitter in this game than right 
right now. And when you look at some of the relief seasons being put together this season, the three that come to my mind immediately, obviously Edwin Diaz is right in front of us. It's going to be the best relief season in franchise history if it's not already. And then another guy that we see too often in Blake Trinan, Trinan who's been ridiculous. And then a guy we don't see, Josh Hader of the Brewers, who's not even their closer, although he has closed some games. I mean, you look at the three of those guys, Jerry, and the numbers that that trio has put up this season. And again, Hader's not even pitching in the ninth more times than not. And it's pretty remarkable how incredible of a season out of the bullpen it has been across the board. But those three guys in particular, I mean, for almost any hitter, when those three guys are on the mound, it's like a good night, night over. Like There's almost no chance when those three guys are pitching. And it just underscores time and time again in my mind that hitting today, when people complain about why don't guys hit the ball the other way um, and too many home runs and too many strikeouts, like I get the complaints, right? Like I see it every day as well. But when you're in that batter's box facing guys like that, I mean, forget trying to hit the ball the other way. Just put it in play and you feel like you've achieved something. Oh, there's no question. And and you look around the league and it, it never more apparent than September and what will soon be October. This is this is where the game is right now, and and it, it is it is bullpenning at its highest. It's it's taking the game and turning it into a much shorter event because at the end of the game, and by the end of the game, we're now talking about the seventh, eighth, ninth innings, and it's dripping closer and closer to to the middle of the game. It is tough to put hits together. It's why at the end of the games, if if you are fortunate enough to draw a walk and hit a homer, you know that's that's a rally, uh, and even just the homer can be considered a rally. So the idea moving forward in baseball could be twofold. One is to get more players that can do that at the back of the game is is just be fortunate enough to square one of these guys up and hit it over the fence. Or put together a team that can score runs in a different way. Because while they're doing this, and Edwin Diaz is a great example, Edwin's had about league averages control. He's not he's not out there walking the world while he's striking out a ridiculous numbers of hitters and, and is almost impossible to get hits off of. Similarly with Blake Trine and similarly with, with Josh Hader. They're they're throwing the ball over the plate while they're they're embarrassing hitters and and I think the you know it is it's a it's a remarkable uh, trade off because you know in in so doing we've kind of minimized the value of spray hitting it just it it doesn't really exist huh. anymore because you can't put hitters to you can't put hits together with the frequency that you used to be able to and you know i think as a result you're going to see much riskier play toward the tail end of a game because you know you have to do something to move the envelope because you're not going to get five straight hits off of guys like Josh Hader or Edwin Diaz yeah, it's uh, it's at a level that is even when you watch it every day, you, you just have no idea how hard it is until you're in there, and it's when it just seems like it would be impossible. Well, when we uh, get back home, um, home stand, the final home stand of the season begins on Monday, the twenty fourth. First four games will be uh, against the A's, one against the Rangers, Mariners value games, of course, presented by BEC. We've got some great uh, group outings coming up at the ballpark as well. Guys night out, girls night out, flannel night, Oktoberfest, mariners.com slash group events to find all the information there. And then we hope to see you for the final weekend of the regular season at Safeco Field, uh, Friday the 28th, and appreciation night. Of course, fireworks show presented by T-Mobile. A lot of prizes, kind of 
They're just give, the Mariners are just giving away TVs. Uh, Saturday's King Griffey Jr. Pop Collectible Night. First 20,000 fans. I'll take one of those beauties home. And then, of course, Sunday, Kids Appreciation Day. So a lot to look forward to when the Mariners get back home. But first, a series in Houston, then Arlington. And then, uh, Jerry, we'll be seeing you face-to-face. As always, Jerry, we know you're slammed, but we appreciate the time. This has been fun. I, I hope your travel to the ballpark today is significantly easier <laughs> than your travel yesterday. Uh, I've already got. I've already found the local Domino's. I think we'll be good. We'll talk to you later, Jerry. <laughs> See you.